You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Hello and welcome to the Transformative Podcast with me, Yanis Panayotidis, the Scientific Director of Rezet, the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. In today's episode, I'm very excited to talk to Cecilia Bruselius, who is a junior professor of political science at Tübingen University, the very place, incidentally, where I got my first academic degree quite a few years back. Hi, Cecilia. Hi, and thanks very much for the invitation. It's very nice to, to be here today. It is indeed a pleasure to have you here in person rather than just through Zoom, which is perhaps a hopeful sign in times of the pandemic. Cecilia works on the politics of free movement in the European Union and also in other historical contexts, comparing how different states and specifically federations deal with the various political and economic implications of the free circulation of people. We only need to look at the UK where the unrestricted immigration of East and Southeast Europeans was one of the focus points of the Brexit campaign, or indeed at most other EU countries, which after EU enlargement in 2004 opted out of free movement for East Europeans for up to seven years. So Cecilia, tell us, why is free movement so contentious, much more so, say, than the free circulation of goods and of money? That's an interesting question. I wonder whether it is necessarily the more contentious one of the four freedom of movements that we have in, in Europe. There are four fundamental freedoms. It's the freedom of people, of goods, of services and capital. And I think some would consider the free movement of capital and the inability to tax capital to be a, a significantly more controversial issue than free movement of people. But Of course, there's something very sort of visual and easy to grasp about the free movement of people. It's easy to, to politicize. It's easy to talk about it in terms of discourses of us and them and deservingness, etc. And in the European context in particular, I think that is also closely tied to the rules on freedom of movement, which is contentious. And what I mean by that is that free movement doesn't just come with the right to move, but also with a whole set of non-discrimination legislation, as it's called. So that means that not only do EU citizens have the right to move freely within the union, they also are under certain conditions entitled to be treated in the same way as nationals in the country where they go. So if you're a worker, you should not be discriminated against, or you do have the same right to access benefits and services, for example. Over time, The right to free movement and also in parts non-discrimination has been extended from applying to workers only. So that's where free movement started to being an entitlement of all EU citizens. So with the Maastricht Treaty of 1992, the EU citizenship was established, the status, but also the right for all EU citizens to move freely. Now, under certain conditions, EU citizens who are non-workers also have entitlements to some forms of welfare. And I think this access to welfare for workers is the most contentious part of the whole EU free movement regime. In fact, I think most states or member states are not contesting the principle of free movement. They're contesting the, the other aspects, the, the rights that are associated with the right to move, to settle and to take up work. 
So in my view, this welfare dimension is really a critical one. And it ties into labor market issue because it issues it's about also the right to take up unemployment and the competition for jobs, with which comes also then entitlement to welfare. So you mentioned essentially two dimensions. One is an economic dimension, a labor market dimension, and the other one is a rights and especially welfare rights related dimension. Let us start with the economic dimension. There is a widespread fear that free immigration of workers will necessarily drive down the wages in the receiving countries. Is this fear justified in your opinion? Um, so yes, there, there are impacts on wages. On the whole, however, is it necessarily a sort of race to the bottom? No. What's perhaps often forgotten is there's those sort of natural, uncontrolled impact of immigration. States have choices. They, first of all, regulate migration. Now we have free movement. However, all European countries have either collectively bargained wages or uh, legislated wages, right? And those apply pretty much to all sectors. And this is the concern that those who come from low-wage countries are willing to work for less. It's not just because wages are lower in countries where they come from, but also because of lack of access to social protection. So economically inactive EU citizens can have access to certain benefits. This is definitely not to all benefits. And one problem is that those who move as job seekers between countries in Europe have no access to social assistance and often insufficient unemployment benefits that they can access. And one consequence is that you have a low reservation wage. You're willing to take up the first possible job. And that means also jobs where you might know that you're paid less than what you should. The employer conditions are substandard. And this happens. You know, the employers will try out <laughs> to exploit uh, people. The question is, what is done to enforce the rights that are actually legislated, that are there and wages that have been agreed on? So states have the capacity to mitigate some of the potential negative effects of free movement through labor legislation and also through social legislation. Now, this aspect of social legislation brings us to the welfare dimension that we mentioned before. There is a widespread notion that outsiders to a community are less deserving of receiving welfare benefits than insiders. So my question is, can there ever be actual European citizenship if we don't have equal social citizenship among Europeans? What we often have in mind when we talk about citizenship is a kind of theoretical ideal. And that's typically associated with an equality of rights. So a status that comes with the same rights for those who hold the status. Social citizenship, as you said, is something that's directly tied to social rights. They are crucial for other rights that we associate with citizenship. So if you're starving because you have no job and there's also no uh, social support, that would be a social right, you can't enjoy your political rights, say. The most crucial social rights are minimum rights. So to keep that there is a right to be supported up to a certain level, that no one should sink below a certain floor, basically. Uh, and these we associate, for example, in policy terms with forms of social assistance, benefits that you can get without uh, necessarily having contributed already or worked, etc. From a sort of citizenship perspective, then, what's crucial is an equal right to a social minimum. I don't think we should worry about 
equal social rights altogether because they are always by construction and by default different. They're based on income, on status, and this has always been the case. In the European context, there's another twist to the citizenship concept, which is one of the fundamental rights, and this is according to, to EU law, of EU citizens is the right to free movement. And just like you couldn't enjoy your political rights if you're in, in dire need, it is difficult to enjoy the freedom of movement if you have no means to, to move and to settle in another country. So you cannot enjoy the rights that are so closely associated with citizenship, the right to move, the right to take up work in another member state, etc. So from that point of view, there really needs to be a guaranteed social minimum to talk about a European citizenship, whereas the current EU legislation guarantees a number of cross-border rights. Many people actually fall in gaps of protection and do not have a right to social minimum benefits as they move between member states. And that has to do both with EU legislation and national legislation. But the concrete implication is, for example, growing homelessness in European cities, cities like Berlin, more than 50% of the homeless population are EU citizens because they have no entitlement to very basic social support. And I think that's not worthy of really be called a full citizenship. But in order to improve these legislations, do we need a strong European identity, which again is a very contentious concept, or could there be national solutions to this conundrum? So you're raising two questions. One is how do we achieve sort of European solutions? And the other is when might member states choose to change their legislation in a more inclusive way? I think for both of the, the questions, the relevant question is whether for certain forms of social policy, do we need something such as solidarity, which then is perhaps tied to this common identity? And my short answer to this is no. <laughs> so if you look at how sort of historically welfare schemes, uh, social insurances have evolved, I think it's very difficult to say that solidarity was a precondition. I think if anything, it could perhaps create solidarity. It's about insurance. It's about insuring against social risks and recognizing that we have mutual vulnerabilities. And also historically, one reason for having social programs have been to mitigate the effects of a capitalist market, the social effects, but also saving then the capitalist market from its own limitations. But also it has been used for state building purposes, for creating loyalties. And in the same way, I think you could you know, create a sense of identity by having something like European social policies. Let me ask you one final question. In your latest research, you emphasize that research on free movement generally focuses perhaps too much on countries of immigration, like Germany and Britain, and not enough on countries of emigration, mainly in Eastern and Southeastern Europe. Tell us a bit about the possible effects of mass immigration, especially on East European countries, and how it affects their economic and social development. Yes, it's not given sufficient attention. One reason might be that those who look at European politics will pick up what's vocal at this level rather than looking first at the dynamics. And they're definitely countries of destination have been much more vocal in questioning and challenging the free movement laws and legislation. The impact of immigration is of course a huge one, but sure, it, it is clear that immigration, immigration has demographic implications. And I think those are the, where to start when looking at some of the countries in Europe experiencing what you call the mass emigration. 
The first thing perhaps to say about that is that we should be very careful not to talk about countries here in terms of blocks, because there's a huge difference between uh, member states that experience free movement primarily as emigration as opposed to immigration. But there are, of course, also economic opportunities. The most obvious one perhaps has to do with the labor market, just as free movement more generally does. And it is the possibility of reducing or exporting, some would say, unemployment. Poland, as an example, the country had something like 20% unemployment in the wake of restructuring after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, etc. Free movement as part of EU membership was really talked about as an opportunity to reduce unemployment. We saw also in the crisis 2008, how, for example, in, in Baltic countries, youth unemployment, which was really high, was effectively reduced by young people leaving the country. Also, importantly, in economic terms is remittances. So the money that are sent back to families at home by migrants abroad. This is often highlighted in context of development countries, but it is really high in, in many of the countries with high emigration in Europe. In fact, if you look at it as a share of GDP, it's often higher than the funds received from the EU as a share of GDP. So these are really significant sums of money. At the same time, whilst I'm you know, talking about these economic impacts, I think there's a danger in talking too much just about economic costs and benefits because there are social impacts that are difficult to put in these terms. And one effect, for example, of high emigration is it changes social structures, it changes societies. Uh, um, sociologists are talking about children growing up in rural parts of Eastern Europe with their grandparents only because the parents are working abroad. And this has psychological effects on children, for example, especially when the mother is away, we, we know from research. It also has, um, I think, and this is we're getting into the political dimension People do not only migrate for economic opportunities. It's not just because wages or conditions are better in other countries. Many will cite dissatisfaction with governments, with corruption, etc., in countries of origin, rather than staying and trying to change. It's easier to leave. And this, of course, then has implications for the long-term political developments and institutional developments of these countries. Cecilia Brugelius, thank you very much for this fascinating insight into your work. And it's goodbye from me, Yanis Panayotidis. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by RedZet in Vienna. Wir sind das Volk! Wir sind das Volk!